Well, our scripture reading comes from Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. And I invite you to follow along with me. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1550. Here's God's word. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, each of the four Gospels present a perspective, a unique perspective, in telling the story of Jesus. Matthew, a Jewish tax collector, writes to a primarily Jewish audience. He begins his Gospel with a genealogy of Jesus and ends it with a great commission. He takes great care to reveal the law of the Old Testament and the prophets. He wants to show that they are fulfilled completely in the person and work of Jesus. Matthew often identi identifies himself as an eyewitness. It's as, as if to say, I can attest this is true. He's the one we've been waiting for, the long-awaited Messiah. An essential theme in Matthew's gospel is the kingdom of heaven. It seems that Matthew delights in proclaiming Jesus' presence has ushered in a new kingdom, and by doing so, he masterfully builds a bridge between the strong Jewish teaching and tradition that God is the ruler of the universe, the king of the universe, and reigns over all. And God is here through Jesus right here, right now, in the person and work of Christ. But the kingdom Jesus teaches in Matthew is unlike this world has ever seen. It's an upside-down kind of kingdom. Jesus teaches that the first shall be last. The way to rule is to serve. And to gain one's life, you must lose it. Unique to Matthew's gospel are many of the parables. Jesus' sermon on the mount. Peter walking on water. And the demise of Judas. And so we come to this final chapter in Matthew, Chapter 28 begins on the morning of the resurrection. And you may know the story. The women gather, at, they, they arrive at Jesus' empty tomb. And they were thinking they were there to anoint Jesus' body and perhaps pay their last respects. They were fatigued and heartbroken. And yet, they came and did the only thing they knew to do. But as you know, the story goes, they received the surprise of their life, for the tomb was empty. And then they have a brief encounter with the risen Jesus. And he says, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And so the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now the people of God are well aware that each time a mountain is involved, 
something significant happens. It was on top of a mountain that Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice Isaac. But then God provided a substitute, a ram. It was on a mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Elijah performed the miracles of a mighty Yahweh, dispelling the idol worshiper God, Baal. And now it seems significant that Jesus has called a meeting with his disciples on the mountain in Galilee. As we move through this passage, we'll ask the text three questions. What does it say about God? What is the mission? And what does it mean to be a disciple? In verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now anyone who's ever embarked on a mission knows, before you begin, it's really good to know who's in charge. And right here from the outset, Jesus tells them, he makes it clear, I've been given all authority, not just on earth, but in heaven and on earth. This is King Jesus, King of the universe. And what does this verse say about God? He is the sender. In verse 19, Jesus says, go make disciples. And the word go is written in a verb tense that many think means as you are going. And so Jesus is saying, in all authority, as you go, make disciples. And that verb tense for make disciples is the main imperative, the main verb. As you go about your life, make disciples. And so what is the mission? What is the mission of every disciple? The mission of every follower of Jesus is to make disciples. The one who has total authority, the king of the universe, the one who calls people into a covenant relationship, now sends them, sends his disciples to make disciples. The mission is to make disciples. A disciple is sent. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he tells them how. We witnessed it this morning. A disciple of Jesus is baptized in the name of the triune God. Baptism is God's way of welcoming someone new to the family. Now notice he doesn't say baptize them with the name. No, he says baptize them in the name. Those who are baptized are joining the journey of discipleship to go make disciples. And by doing so, that verb make disciples also means be a disciple. As they are going on the journey of discipleship, Jesus gives them a new identity. Baptize them in the name. For the Father has sent the Son, and the Father and Son sent the Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Spirit send the church. That's us. Into the world. We belong to a missional God. And then verse 20, it continues. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Everything? Wow. Perhaps it was here in this surreal moment of standing on a mountain with the risen Jesus 
that the disciples were beginning to grasp. The kingdom of heaven was not some far-off existence, but a present reality. From the very first day, Jesus had preached that the time was near. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. And now the rabbi and close friend, the resurrected Son of God, was sending them out in his name, under his authority, to represent his kingship in the world. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the family name, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. How did Jesus teach his disciples? The lessons he, they learned didn't happen in a classroom. There was no written manual entitled, How to Live the Upside-Down World of Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples the gospel as he embodied it. He offered a small number of men access to his life, demonstrating how to live everyday life in a new kingdom, with a new set of values. He taught his disciples to live a fully surrendered life by living a fully surrendered life. His presence with them brought both an invitation, come all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. And a challenge, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, an invitation, and challenge. As important as these things, Jesus' disciples learned that living in the new kingdom often involved unlearning old ways of living. As we think about these disciples and the little we know about them, we know they weren't chosen by Jesus for their intellect, or their wealth, or their status, or the power that they had. And even after three years of being with Jesus in a close rabbi-apprentice relationship, the group came unhinged. Our passage opens, I think it's verse 17, that says Jesus came to them and they, they worshiped, but some doubted. Years ago, Consumer Reports issued an annual report entitled, Things Hard to Open. And it featured things like pill bottles and packaging. I don't know if you can relate. It's so frustrating to not be able to open something. And I wonder if these 11 disciples were featured on the front cover of this one time because things hard to open. Really? They had witnessed the miracles. They had seen the crucifixion. And now they're standing on a mountain with the risen Savior. And some doubted. But they worshipped him. These were the disciples that Jesus chose to pour his life into. Walking these three years looked a lot like unlearning what the gospel isn't. Judas betrayed him, sold him out. Peter denied him not once, but thrice. And even before the Last Supper, James and John bring their mother 
to lobby for the VIP seats in this kingdom Jesus kept talking about. Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection till he could touch the wounds, and the list goes on. And yet, Jesus poured his life into these men, and within a few hundred years, Christianity grew like wildfire. What does this tell us about God? The success of his mission does not depend on us. He is in complete control. And what does this tell us about being a disciple? The way forward is through weakness. Oh, this upside-down kingdom, for when we are weak, Jesus says we are very strong. Why is weakness the way to make disciples, you ask? Because the unique characteristic of following Christ is power, strength, being brilliant. No, it's grace. Grace is what distinguishes Christians and Christianity from every religion, philosophy, and worldview. And the gospel teaches for grace to work in our lives. We must admit that we can't get there ourselves. Laying down our pride doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens by walking closely with Jesus in the details of life, surrounded by a Christian community, all doing the same thing. Allowing Jesus to peel off the layers of us that don't look like him, that no longer serve us in this new kingdom. And slowly we begin to see that all of life is walking between two kingdoms. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus peels off the layers of our cold, stubborn hearts one day at a time, we soon to treasure that our weakness is strength. To weak is to be strong in the grace of God. To be weak is to be strong in the power of God, in the love of God. And the strength comes when we admit we can't get there by ourselves. Only Jesus saves. Knowing God as rescuer is paramount in any life. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, he said, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son, he so loves. What does it mean to be a disciple? We must know God as rescuer. To the extent we grasp this in our daily lives and demonstrate this kind of humility in our homes and places of work, in our schools, and as we are going, in the context of our daily living, we will show the world Jesus' divine design. Our treasures are in jars of clay. His power is made perfect in weakness. As Christians, as the transforming power of the gospel takes hold of our lives, the result is humility. And as Sinclair Ferguson recently in our pulpit said, it happens as a grace that glitters. Others will notice and say, there is a strength in your humility. There is a strength in your weakness. Yes, let me tell you about the grace of God in my life. I was at the end of my rope. But he came 
and he ministered to me. He pulled me out of the ditch. And now I live to tell others amazing grace. Andrew Murray writes, The Christian tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness. God wants us to rejoice in it. The Christian thinks his weakness is his greatest hindrance in the sight and service of God. God tells us that it is the secret of your strength and success. Author Dallas Willard tells a story about growing up in a small farming town in southern Mississippi. And he remembers the time when electricity came to his his town. For weeks, a convoy of trucks would arrive using equipment he and his young friends had never seen. As they watched the earth being dug up and lines were laid down to establish a grid that would eventually bring electricity. As an old man looking back on his life, he would later write, I had no idea what an impact this particular event would have on my life and my family's life and our life together as a community. Prior to that day, Willard described what life on a farm in rural Mississippi looked like. All of the families had a particular way of going about their day, the way they worked and cooked and cleaned, the way they lit up their houses and harvested their crops. It was all built around a carefully constructed way of life that no longer seemed relevant after electricity came to town. And he remarks, for the next several years, people had to unlearn one way of living to grab a hold of this radical new life that was now available to them. Christian, disciple, to the extent we allow these teachings of Jesus to reconfigure our lives and take hold of this life that is now in a new kingdom, God will use us to make disciples who then make disciples. Jesus gave the world one standard of measurement to measure the church. Do you know what it is? This is how they'll know you belong to me. When they see the love you have for one another. Finally, verse 20. Matthew ends this beautiful commission given by Christ as every good leader who tells you who's in charge. And he ends it with, and surely I am with you always. Not I will be with you. I am is with you. Disciples on mission live with a great promise. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends his gospel with a great commission or great promise. I am with you always. God goes with us. This is not an individual mission. This is a corporate, plural mission. Go make disciples in your everyday life. And as you do, I am with you. What does this passage teach us about God? He is a missional God. The mission belongs to him. 
The church itself is not the mission. Jesus said, I will build my church. You make disciples. The church is the vessel through which disciples are made. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How else? Teaching them all I've teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. The gospel. Not just teaching it, but how to live it. And finally, we are not alone on this mission. Surely he is with us even to the end of age. In his book entitled Multiply, Francis Chan wrote, The best hermeneutic of the gospel is a community of men and women who believe it and live by it. Let us pray. O oh God of great mission, how we thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you that while you do not need us to do any mission, you're completely self-sufficient. You desire us. And so we ask now this morning your blessing on each person here, that you would whisper in their ear how to go and make disciples in the way that you have gifted them, perhaps with gifts of compassion, perhaps with gifts of discernment, hospitality, mercy, all the beautiful ways that you have designed them. But we know one thing is for sure. As they walk with you, they will know that you are king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 592, Lord, You Give the Great Commission. Let us stand and sing.
Each week after our service, deacons and elders will be up front, and perhaps you need to be reminded that Christ owns everything, that he is in charge of the universe, and that there is nothing greater than his love and care. He's been to the future and secured it. And if you need someone to come and pray with you, we'd be glad to do that. And now, family at First Presbyterian Church, God has plans for us, plans not just inside these walls, but where you are sent. The church is not just 200 West Washington Street. It's wherever you go this, this week. And so may the God, the love of God the Father, the joy of God the Son, and the enabling presence of God the Holy Spirit send you to be his witness to reign and rule. In Jesus' name we pray.